0: Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that thinks the X's and O's in tic-tac-toe should just figure out how to embrace their true nature and kiss and make up. Why all the fighting? I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. The New Disruptors is now part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. You can still find us at newdisrupt.org and now as well at boingboing.net. I met John Mitchell in his mild-mannered role as a reporter at a major MetroWebian publication called Read-Write Web. He was the only full-time employee, but then this seeming tech guy left and has been getting involved in squishier things, involving music and podcasting and Burning Man and all sorts of stuff that, you know, sometimes makes people in the technology world wonder, what's what's going on there? John wrote an essay recently that I thought really profoundly put its finger on what is happening with music and the internet? What is happening with the future of musicians making their own livelihood, charting their own path? And so I'm having him on the podcast to talk about both what John is up to and what he thinks the future of music for independent musicians could be. John, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Glenn. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. It's a pleasure. We actually met in person. I know it's this crazy thing. We met in person recently at XOXO.
1: Yeah, that's right. It was it was a room full of internet friends meeting in person.
0: It was fun, and uh, and are you just, are, this is a few weeks ago now. I still have the endorphin high. I am still kind of riding the wave. <laughs> yeah, I am still processing it too.
1: It's it's amazing how much of I mean, every single person from people who worked right in my domain to people who whose work has nothing to do with what I am doing, I learned something from all of them, uh, and I am still kind of crunching on it.
0: Yeah, I think one of the great things about it is that there's terrific sessions. Like the conference part is really great and I think I listened to like – I think I was there for 90 percent of the talks. But it's also equally great is every other thing that's happening, every interaction. I, I don't know there's any event I've ever been to since I'm not – you're not a marketer. I'm not a marketer where you go to a marketing conference. I think a lot of stuff happens outside of the sessions on how to do better tab pulls or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever happens in that field. But I think this is that kind of thing where was so much creativity – both like in hearing new ideas while people were on a stage and then having these discussions in the hallways and at food carts too.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Uh, so the, uh, your background is, I think, very interesting. You're a young man. I'm an ancient person by comparison, a couple decades older, and I like to talk to the kids, you know, find out what's going on in their lives. And uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, in my head I'm still 25, so we have a lot in common. And, uh, you know, I'm fascinated always where people come from, to get to the point in their lives where they're doing something on their own. And it's harder at your age to do that. You went to Brown University, which is a uh, – you know, I used to visit when I, I, was, in, uh, I was in a, a small liberal arts college in New Haven. And I used to take the train over to my friend at Brown and um, where things were much more fun. And uh, Brown is already known for being a kind of iconoclastic place. But you did something even more iconoclastic inside it. You had an independent concentration, a major that wasn't on the books. What was your major about or your degree about?
1: Well it's it, it I called it music and mind, and basically I just took them seriously. I took them at their word that at this school you could you could really put together your own curriculum and study the things that actually interest you. So I kept saying, uh, are you sure? And they kept saying, Yeah. So <laughs> I you know, I I I went further and further out as the as the years went on there until I'd basically combined uh, my lifelong interest in music with uh, some of the really uh, amazing resources in cognitive science and neuroscience and uh, as well as the religious studies department to sort of knit the two together with the historical and anthropological ways that people have used music. And I studied, I studied uh, the effect that music has on human beings. And that involves some performance and composition uh, as well as a lot of uh, research and uh, ethnomusicology type stuff.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! So it's a little bit there. There are theater degrees I've heard of that are more like that, that incorporate performance research. You know, sometimes people get deep into some historical area of theater and they'll restage something in the original way. But I don't hear as much about that with music, especially combining a scientific angle. You you were unique at Brown in pursuing this. Uh, well, there there was actually the. I, and of course, I didn't like get a
1: a full fledged neuroscience background from this concentration, but uh, there there were a lot of people uh, across a lot of disciplines that were studying m- mindfulness and meditation and other kinds of first person practices, and and using you know scientific research and, and neuroscience study as a way of uh, sort of verifying their personal findings. Uh, and and so there were people in the religious studies department doing this, um, as well as other arts, people, dance and uh, music as well. Um, So that was sort of my community. There were, we were talking across disciplines. Um, There weren't very many people in the music department doing the kinds of things I was doing, but I had a lot of great conversations with, you know, theater concentrators, for example.
0: I I love the issues around performance, and I love that you were studying uh, the sort of neurological bases of things like that, about how we perceive music, because there's that thing that if you've never been on a stage, and I, I suspect that most of the listeners are people who have performed in some way or another. They've given a speech at the very least in front of a large group, or they are a musician or some other kind of, you know, have some other kind of like specific artistic thing in which you get up in front of a group. But that sense of being up in front of people, there's a... You start thinking about Jung or just archetypes or like the collective unconscious or what is it that we feel when you're in front of a live group and there is an energy that however non-mystical you want to be, you feel it. And I love it. I feed on that and try to preserve some of that in this podcast. I try to feel like we're talking to people in real time when we do this. It's hard to pull off. What is that sense? Did you look into what that – Feeling comes from, or how we how we perceive it, or create it.
1: There are a lot of things going on. I think Uh, part of it is this flow state that a lot of people are talking about. There's this you know this book flow by Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi. that that you know I've heard people talking on tech podcasts about this flow state um, of sort of uninterrupted inspiration that is the is the goal really of any work. Actually, the, the places that I'm hearing this book mentioned most often are in sort of productivity podcasts and play, talking about, you know, how we use the, the software that we interact with on a daily basis. And, and user experience design is is, you know, thinking about a flow state like that as the goal. And that was a book that I was introduced to through some of the introductory classes in my concentration, which were about Buddhism and 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 about translating the B- Buddhism was sort of seen as an as a vector into the idea uh, of mindfulness that we would then study it in a much more cross disciplinary way. But Buddhism has practices that you know lay people and beginners can start with to sort of experience these states quickly and in in highly concentrated ways. And and it was in that context that I was introduced to the idea of of flow states as a as a human. Goal, which translated very easily to my studies of uh, improvisational music and uh, other kinds of states and something I definitely didn 't realize as I was studying these things is that uh my comfort uh with mindfulness practice would would then end up being an asset to me as a journalist too. Uh, you know, as an interviewer, I felt very much the same pressure that I felt on stage as a musician. And I think that that flow state is sort of is, – is the underlying phenomenon and that, you know, it has pretty well understood neurological basis too.
0: It's really interesting because that's I, – I see what you mean too in the interview part of it. We're getting meta. We're doing a podcast in which we'll be talking about podcasts shortly <laughs> and maybe you can podcast about that too. But the uh, – there's this issue of how you get past the walls of other people's, you know, the facades people put up. And one of the things that happened at XOXO last year and this year is that I don't think I've ever been with as large a group of people where the walls come down. There's something mm-hmm. about this shared experience and participation, the attitude that's brought into it that I had more, let's say, real conversations with people that were meaningful. In a way that I think, you know, I could say, like in a given year, I'm not sure I had as many as in that one time. That usually you have to become. I mean, I became close friends with a couple people during the event, and there are other people I've only met, like you, not in person. I meet you in person, and and we've an immediate, you know, friendship. And it's um, there's something that is so intriguing and wonderful about it, so seductive about it. I could see why you would want to study this as a field. Having studied it, does it change uh, you said you found this in your reporting in other areas that you could use some of the uh, principles you used about mindfulness, but has it changed how you view other people or interaction or performance
1: absolutely I, I I try to maintain that state at all times that's that's what the the goal of the meditation practice at the beginning of my studies was and you know and as I practiced my instruments and you know studied them and learned how to hold an audience's attention, uh, it was, it really drew on that, on that basic mindfulness practice. And so, you know, it, it carried on through my work, like I said, in in terms of interviewing. And then the, as far as that, that social version of it that you just described at XOXO, that's something that Burning Man has really, uh, has really provided me. And, and it's comparable in some ways the, you know, the, the social environment, uh, is designed around, uh, causing interactions and providing interesting stimuli as the subject for those interactions. And so that festival as a yearly ritual for me gives me a lot of practice in you know, maintaining that state from moment to moment and from person to person. Uh, so it's really, uh, you know, it's improved my social skills too. It's not, just a, it's not just a professional skill. It's really kind of a way of being
0: this is something um, I've talked about a bit in in my past as I went through cancer treatment about 15 years ago mm-hmm. and and very successfully thank you and uh, I always have to say that people are like oh my god you had cancer like no no it was great it was a year it was my one of the best years of my life it was a complicated thing but one of the things that as uh, well documented is that some chemotherapy uh, changes neurochemistry, at least temporarily. And you get chemo brain where you forget things and so forth. Mm -hmm. One of the benefits that I did not hear discussed and I've since compared with other people who've gone through it is that it does lower your barriers too. And so the emotional presence and mindfulness that I was able to have during that year, that is something I've striven to recapture ever since. It's one of the reasons I like XOXO. This year, you talking and writing about Burning Man was the first time I got the glimmer of like, oh, that's what it's about. Mm. I'd heard people talk so much about the surface, usually outsiders and not the inner part. And it's uh, being able to be awake
1: mm-hmm.
0: in mm-hmm. life. That 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 is so appealing and so difficult to maintain. I'm, I, I like that that was part of your studies, that you actually – Took that as part of the basis of what you wanted to pursue in life,
1: yeah. And and I, you know, I didn't know at the time exactly what I wanted to pursue. I just sort of knew how I wanted to pursue it, uh, and and so I I I've, I focused on something that I'd been interested in my whole life, namely music, um, which of course required a lot of writing as well. And so I, I when I was a when I was a tech reporter, I would joke that when people would ask me, "What the hell does this concentration have to do?" with, with what you do professionally, (laughs) I I would joke that, that it gave me uh, a lot of practice in explaining abstruse concepts. (laughs) And and since, since that's what I was doing, uh, writing about technology uh, a lot of the time, uh, I, I, you know, joked that that was a, that was a direct uh, result of my studies, but, uh, really the thing that helped me more than anything was just that ability to pay attention and to, uh, to, to hold meaningful conversation with people Especially people with whom I was way out of my depth, like the sort of engineers and, and tech geniuses that I would meet on a daily basis.
0: Oh, yeah. I was going to ask about that because that you know that is that thing. It was like you spent four years pursuing – or it's Brown. It could have been any number of years. Don't let me make any presumptions about your career. It was just four. I wanted to get it over with. <laughs> Excellent. So you spent, you spent that time. You graduate. You have a, a few different jobs, and mostly including writing. And then uh, ReadWriteWeb was expanding at that point. You become a full-time Correspondent, you spend almost well, you know, quite a bit of two years, enmeshed in the technology world, which is full of people who who are. Um, I don't mean this critically to colleagues or friends or whatever, but there is a, there is a a nature of walking through life in technology because there's the issues of marketing, that you're putting a veneer on something, that you're dealing with technology that has no human connection. It's just purely abstract you know, design, although some of that can get you in a flow state and so forth. How do you reconcile that? You said it made you a better listener and made you able to be more attentive when you're talking to people and you're out of your depth. But how do you reconcile that sort of maybe cold world of tech with the warm world that of, of self and uh, mindfulness?
1: It was pretty difficult to do. I'll be honest there there was a sort of turning point uh at my and during my time at ReadWrite where I realized that uh I felt complicit in in kind of hurting people's minds oh my gosh, uh, and okay. and you know and some of that some you it's real, there's a really clear point in the writing and there's we started a series I started a series called Pause at ReadWrite to sort of work on these issues uh I I what what happened was I I took a retreat an intentional retreat from technology you know, which I did for a story just to, you know, one of those, like, I went to the digital detox retreat, and here's what happened kinds of blog posts and found myself really relieved to get away from it and and only really able to write about that for a while after I got back. Um, and prior to that, I mean, and and my, my job prior to read, write for a couple of years was at a, a news startup, a small web app with a uh, not growing, but a large enough community of of passionate users. And so I had some community management experience and a little bit of product experience and definitely some uh, understanding of the online news ecosystem. And I was really thrilled about it for such a long time and became uh, completely enmeshed. And it wasn't until a substantial way through my time at ReadWrite that I realized that my habits and patterns and thoughts had changed uh, mm. and that I had become... Uh, a really different kind of person and very fragmented by the many online relationships that I was trying to maintain at once. And it started to come at the expense of real world relationships. And uh, that was very difficult for me to reconcile on a day-to-day basis. So I tried to write about that for a long time and some of those posted well, but others, you know, received a lot of pushback. And in the meantime, you know, I still was required by the job to, to, to cover things that I didn't want to cover in ways I didn't want to cover them. It wasn't all just the technology, just the subject matter that was upsetting to me. A lot of it was also the publishing world, the the wet, the online publishing, the requirements of online publishing to churn out content constantly, to make compromises in depth uh, for the sake of speed and all kinds of things like that. You know, I felt complicit in distracting people and interrupting people and startling them with. Headlines in all caps, and and I as I tried for a long time not to do that in my position, and you know found ultimately that uh, it wasn't going to be possible.
0: But you know what's what's amazing to me is that it's not just that you're you're not I mean you aren't the only one who's come across that of course, but it's that there are so many people who seem to have had to back off from that. Brian Lamb is now this incredibly – one of the founders of uh, early editors of Gizmodo, which was the prototype, I think, for churning out stuff as much as possible. It, there's an, a hungry, angry maw. You had to feed with new gizmo information all the time, and it's changed. But Brian got burned out, left it. I probably talked about it on the podcast mm-hmm. a bit because he founded a site that is almost a contemplative site. The wire cutter, in contrast to Gizmodo, is – it's slow. It's the best of. It still has a consumptive angle. There is a materialistic angle, a consumptive angle, but they spend an enormous amount of time – Sorting out and thinking about what's right, and before they publish a thing that says this is the thing that is best in this area, and it doesn't change, it doesn't scroll up, it doesn't go away, and I think there's a lot of folks who found in, yourselves in your position. I, I worry about that. You know, I I've been writing about technology for a long time. Is how much are we encouraging people to consume? Let's say unnecessarily, not in a a thoughtful way, but in a you know, in a mindless uh, uh way. That hungry maw again is we're trying to feed the economy. Mm-hmm. I was actually in touch with Brian
1: uh, during my job quitting process, and he was very, very inspirational <laughs> to me. Uh, and, and that's great. The, uh, I, I found a lot of camaraderie, actually, and, and got a lot of support from other writers, especially people who'd been tech writers for longer than I have. And mo- and mo- and most of those relationships started solidifying and, and the conversation started getting a lot more interesting as people started to hear that I wasn't just totally gung-ho about my new life as a tech reporter.
0: That's when we started talking and I was like – when you said you were leaving your job, I was like, right on. Mm-hmm. Good for you. And it's not that – I have nothing it's read, write, web. I, I read you – no, know, as opposed to some sites that I just don't want to have anything to do with because of their approach to technology and reporting and everything like that. But you know, I read, read, write, web. I read uh, Matthew Panzerino. He's at TechCrunch, which means I have to read TechCrunch now because mm-hmm. he's a good reporter. But it's more that uh, you're – Desire your your explanation of what you wanted to do and why you were leaving was like oh then of course you should leave and with that kind of drive and with the background you have of course you should try this you Mm -hmm. know you should you're not it's not like you spent your entire life trying to become a read write web reporter and you've reached the apotheosis you're like ah I'm tired of it it's like no your whole life was about seemingly something different. You said, I need to go and pursue that. Mm-hmm. The reason I stayed at Read Write as long as
1: I did was because it felt like the place that I could most closely approximate what I was trying mm-hmm. to do in that whole ecosystem. I had offers, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but like I, I had the opportunity to go elsewhere and I turned them down at every turn because I felt like I was in the right place. It just, you know, eventually I realized that it wasn't the right field at all.
0: Let's pause so I can thank this week's sponsor, PDF Pen Scan Plus from Smile Software. It's an iOS app that works on an iPhone or iPad. It lets you scan documents, whether it's multiple pages, articles from a magazine, receipts, whatever you like. And then you can crop them, visually enhance them, size them to standard paper sizes for printing, It also includes optical character recognition, or OCR, right on the device. It doesn't have to go out to a server to turn the text in an image, whether you've captured it with the camera inside the app or it's in your camera roll, into searchable text. You can then copy the text and use it in another document, paste into email, or you can export that entire file as a PDF with the searchable text and image inside. It can automatically detect page edges and crop to them without having to sit there and adjust. You can store your documents in iCloud to share them between devices. You can enhance them. You can change the scanning resolution, color, print them out, share them into PDF pen. So you can do markup and editing as a PDF PDF pen scan plus makes it incredibly easy to bring documents in and out. You can import and export using cloud services like Dropbox, Evernote box, Alfresco, and Google drive. You can also use iTunes FTP file transfer protocol and web dev to move things on and off. It costs $4 and 99 cents. There's a demo by our good friend, David sparks, fellow podcaster in which he shows all the powerful features that are packed into this tool. Go to smilesoftware.com slash ND. That's ND like new disruptors. And take a look at PDF Pen Scan Plus. It's the only tool you need on your iPhone or iPad to take documents in and make use of them. That's smilesoftware.com slash ND. Follow the link and let them know that we sent you. And now back to the podcast. The many different strands of your life, you're trying to bring those all together. And I, this is where this essay comes in that, that sparked me to say, hey, we need to talk because uh, you know this whole podcast series, I, I, you know, we go in <laughs> – there's lots of different directions of it. A lot of it is about how do you take control of your own creativity? You know, It's how do you take control of your own life, make a, a stand for yourself to do what you want to do and a lot of that in modern life requires having an audience or some kind of community participation. Either you have to collaborate with other people to make something that other people buy or you have to find an audience yourself that – can contribute even if it's only morale or spiritually. It doesn't have to be money if that Mm -hmm. fulfills you enough. And you wrote this essay that I will link. uh, It's at net slash work. And uh, it's called Love Can Save the Media. And I'll link it in the show notes. And uh, it seemed to me like you were coming at this from a standpoint of the music industry. We know it's collapsing. It's changed. We know the gatekeepers, all these things that everyone knows. What's going to happen next? And uh, you have some – some suggestions as to what the answers might be. Tell me about what you think could change for musicians or what they need.
1: Well, I, f- I feel like I should back up a few steps from that and start with the first experiment post-ReadWrite and how it led me to mm, this. Yes. Uh, because the first thing I thought to do was to build a text publication and see how that would go uh, using the sort of insights that I learned. Like, when I was I was the only full-time employee of ReadWrite at, say, Media on the ground in San Francisco, and so I was, in it, just by virtue of being there, I was enmeshed in the kinds of decisions web publishers, what big web publishing companies have to be making right now and totally dissatisfied with all the answers that I was hearing uh, and not my, and my suggestions were not being heard. So I decided to leave to build my own publication, uh, which I did. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I've launched it. I wrote 12 issues of it. It's called the daily portal and it's, it's a site that I'll probably keep writing on for the rest of my life. It's just that as I, continued publishing, I realized, oh, look, I'm back on the grind. It's it's a lot like the things that people were saying <laughs> at XOXO about uh, how, you know, they would go independent to do the thing they loved uh, without compromising and then realize that they're just, you know, living out the same values of work and money and working just as hard. Uh, and it's and it's not it doesn't really make the difference. So uh, I, I sort of I slowed down first. The first thing I did was realize that I didn't want to try and figure out how to make money uh, as an independent text publisher in that cutthroat world. So I looked at what I'd done and realized, hey, I just managed a pretty, uh, pretty cool web development project. I should probably do that for money, uh, since that's something that people pay people for. (laughs) And so I started consulting for clients, it's sort of in the meantime and figuring out, okay, which of the skills that I've learned are ones that I can keep practicing uh, and get to ten thousand hours on, and you know wh- which ones can I make a living from, and which ones can I can I subsidize with that living? And the whole time, uh, my music was staring me in the face and saying, <laughs> you know this this is this is something that you have not been able to practice because of uh, you know the constant grind of cranking out words, the vol- sheer volume of words that you have to c- you have to crank out in order to to make it as a writer, and so. Uh, I'd been playing with people uh, here in the Bay Area for a while, but I, I, a project of my own was starting to come to mind, and I was planning that out, and I really wanted to spend time on it. So because of my background in tech and, and media, I started thinking about how to make it viable. And, and and I'd always been, all throughout, I'd been a huge podcast listener, and I found that it was a lot of the most valuable, uh, meaningful content that I was you know, thinking about on a daily basis and, and spending time on.
0: Tell uh, me that too. What, what is it about podcasts that, um, that, that brings it out? I mean, especially, I guess uh, I want to ask too, if it's newer podcasts or ones that have been around for a long time that provoke that reaction in you.
1: Uh, it's, it's mostly in the, the podcast from the last two or three years. Um, the first one that really started changing the way I thought and, uh, wrote, uh, was back to work with Merlin Mann and Dan yeah. Benjamin. Uh, and and shows that I learned about through that show and through that network, uh, and and it's expanded expanded a lot since then, uh, and a lot of these shows are on these themes, you know, like the new disruptors, for instance, of doing of doing your own thing, of you know trying to be have a direct connection with the people who support what you do, and you know not compromising, and that's that was definitely. In, in maybe an unfocused way, how I was feeling uh, around the time I decided to leave ReadWrite, and I didn't know where to focus it. And so, you know, the as I wrote in this post that, you, that, that uh, you referred to, I began to realize that the media that I loved most were all audio media. As much as writing has been a part of my life since, you know, I can remember, I felt like the relationships I had with the things I listened to were more meaningful to me and the people who created those things. So the idea of starting a podcast about music just sort of popped up on its own. Uh, I, I love this medium and I wanted to participate. It's actually not the first podcast that I have had. I had a, te- a totally geeky, fun tech podcast called The Doc with uh, my friend Jamie Young from appadvice.com. Uh, and we talked about iPhone apps on a weekly basis. And it was a very small show, uh, but we had, pe- we had a few people who really loved it. Um, and we did, uh, like 20 something episodes and we, we did it in a season so that we had this sort of option of saying, okay, we're, we're going to go on break now. And I felt like it wasn't something that I could keep pouring time into after that first season was over. Um, but I really wanted to do it again. Uh, and so music seemed like the obvious subject. And at first it was just, I, you know, haven't been able to work on music. Uh, I've been writing about all this other stuff, um, so uh, one hour conversation about music every week would be a really fun way to sort of scratch that itch. But I quickly realized that uh, that podcasting could be a medium of distribution for music as well. And as I was working on my own music, I realized that this might be a good way to get the reach that I would need to make the project, the music project that I was working on, successful.
0: We talked about this a bit uh, on on the Twitter, I think, about that um, comedians discovered this a few years ago. This is actually uh, – I've wondered – the reason I asked about when this sparked in you and, and I think Merlin's show, Merlin and Dan's show is a great example of that new wave of things is that it seemed like suddenly there is this giant second wave of podcasts. And I think there may be some timing associated with the comedians that had discovered it. The rise of social networking, even three years ago, it was still or four years ago it was still it wasn 't early, but I mean Twitter was still rising to prominence. Facebook had not been that many years on its curve up, and comedians in two thousand and ten were using podcasts like Crazy as a way to boost their careers and it 's changed the life for so many of them and it turned into you know entire comedy networks and so forth and i 'm not saying that 's all been solved, but there 's millions upon millions upon millions of downloads of comedy podcasts from people who are touring comedians who they make some money from the shows, some make a lot of money from the podcasts now, but the podcasts are a tool to be to develop an audience which then aids them when they're go out on the road or they sell comedy performances online
1: yeah and the the uh, with music uh too and i i mean I feel like comedy has the same problem. one of the things that I realized is that podcasting could serve as a hedge for my own ability to crank out music that people love on a, on a, you know, daily basis. Uh, the, you know, we heard from Jonathan Colton and XOXO about how he rose to prominence as a quote unquote internet musician. <laughs> and, and one of the things that he had to do was just, and, and actually all the performers that, that, uh, all the musicians that spoke there had this had variations on the same theme. You know, you have to just crank it out constantly in order to in order to it's the it's the same kind of problem that I was uh, experiencing with writing. And some people are geniuses like that that can just pour out good stuff all the time or pour out stuff that's not as good and just keep going. And the momentum itself is enough to sustain interest. But it's it's just not how I work. Creatively, like I, I'm happy to have, like I can have a conversation at any time, but I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to write a hit song every week. So podcasting seemed like a way to talk about other people's music uh, and to 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 sustain interest in a point of view and a and a particular culture around music that doesn't have to be the same music or the same musicians every week. And that's and then I realized that there's a pretty interesting. Multiplier that happens there, which is if we have indie musicians on our show, and they you know have a great conversation with us about songwriting, and they play a few songs, um, and they've got an existing fan base, all of their fans are going to listen, and their fans become our fans, and our fans become their fans, and it grows the pie that and that and that makes it it makes it easier for all of us to reach more people, and it's and it doesn't have to be. Uh, a competition that way, because there's a mutual benefit in in people coming on the show, us us having people on the show. And so that's the kind of model that I'm thinking about. Um, so that occasionally I can put my own music out there and say, hey, uh, we just did something. Uh, and And if you liked, you know, this guy who was on the show last week, you might like this.
0: Let me seize upon that too, the, the making the pie – I was about to say the George Bush thing of making the pie taller, uh, <laughs> making the pie bigger. We all want to grow the pie and, and uh, there's this issue about where things are additive and where they take away from. And there's so many things on the internet now that are competing for attention. There's a c- concern that moving attention one place just takes it away from another. This is the idea behind like a Kickstarter donor exhaustion which mm-hmm. I talked to uh, Yancy Strickler of Kickstarter about recently. And he, he thinks it's nonsense, and I would argue that Kickstarter's continued growth and the growth of now secondary and tertiary-style uh, Kickstarter crowdfunding sites as well show is not abating, is that everyone brings their own audience to a project. So you have on – You know, Arcade Fire or whomever or someone much less well-known on your show, whatever it is. But like, you know, someone with – I'm going to be talking to Marion Call, a musician from Alaska. uh, At some point in the near future, we're going to do an in-person interview when she passes through Seattle. And um, she's built this audience in, you know, in 10s and 20s, right? And she goes and tours and tours and tours and does house performances and makes all her music available for free on Bandcamp to to stream. And you buy it from there. And – She's not taking away from somebody else. She might be taking away from labels where music that's prefabricated, marketed, and presented in a way that used to be the way to build successes and now isn't. Maybe the money's coming away from there or maybe this is new listeners. But I don't feel like it's – there's only a finite amount of money to go around among independent artists, maybe between the big head, long tail model. Maybe the big head shrinks a little bit in order to make a – bigger pool in the middle and it stretches out to the long tail i mean does that fit in with how you think about this pie getting bigger and everyone benefiting from it
1: yeah i think so i i can't i can't overstate how little it bothers me that the middleman is being cut out that i just don't have i i I don't have any qualms about that so the 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 thing is the thing about labels and distribution and and you know and and this this implicates uh you know the time and attention of of listeners or readers or what or what have you uh, is that it it's still important for discovery to have a central location to find things. That the problem I think that f- that indie publishers of anything face online is is just the diffuse places where we find things. You still you still have to an audience has to find you and you have to find an audience and it's easier to do if there is a central channel for that. So the idea behind i mean to I, I, that's how i think of a record label a, as a as a curator of a kind of music and it's the kind of attitude and a kind of culture so that you can that that puts a stamp of trust on anything that comes out and so i think of of the podcast that we're starting as a prototype of something similar except that the ties are looser it doesn't have you know it doesn't involve contracts with artists it's just that if you have participated in this show it means something culturally, and and so people can just tune into the one place. And anything that comes through might be of interest to them, and might not. But you know that it, it's uh, something that they're gonna come to trust over
0: time. Well, I thought about you know this show is the new disruptors, and I thought about sometimes it's the new distributors too. Is that <laughs> there's a difference between Etsy and eBay that's fundamental, and even you know Etsy's become enormous, and people have complaints about specific parts of the operation, but in the end, they still only take 3.5% of the sale and a mm-hmm. small listing fee. And they seem uh, – the, it's the reverse gatekeeper. And this got talked about a lot at XOXO as well, where the gatekeeper in the past was an implacable force that controlled access to the marketplace of a mass market and the only way to reach that marketplace was at extreme cost because you were typically moving physical goods and the whole infrastructure to print albums and everything else, it only made sense to have blockbusters. Mm-hmm. And there was some room for smaller stuff, indie things or quasi pseudo indie things. You know, so you have small publishers that could eke out a living, but they still had to work with book distributors or there were special orders. You had independent music labels, but they were stocked in odd stores and they were direct, you know, you had to fill out cards in the back of zines and things to get it. So it feels like the breakdown in the necessity for physical infrastructure has first kept gatekeepers in place even for digital infrastructure or digital delivery, but now we're seeing this, you know, Kickstarter, Etsy, uh, VHX for video, uh, uh, you know, even a Stripe. I always bring up Stripe as a credit card processor or a square for physical tr- transactions as opposed to a PayPal or the merchant banking groups or whatever, that the gatekeepers now, um, they're not really gatekeepers, they're facilitators. Their business model is to have the greatest possible participation and to eke out a tiny Tiny amount of money, tiny margin on a billion transactions instead of a huge margin on this controlled thing where you sell a billion of one thing. And the way you talk about this, I think this all fits into that mold of we need more. Uh, it's a way for independent producers, independent creators, they have a, a way to reach people directly. And so the gatekeeper function disappears. You become in this model, you are a facilitator with your podcast, you're a creator. But you're also a facilitator. You're not taking anything from anybody by giving them a forum in which to reach more people. Sure, and the, and the great thing about music
1: the in in this day and age, and something that keeps striking me the more musicians I I talk to, uh, is is that there there is no one product anymore. the 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 distribution is different for every artist because they all have different businesses. And you know, I've I've been thinking a lot about the record industry and what went wrong there, and the conclusion i have come to i think is that the era of gatekeeper controlled recorded music in a standard format that is priced at a you know a global level that everyone comes to expect and comes in the same package uh for every consumer is is a historical aberration as far as how music has gone you know, that isn't the way that people consumed music until, except for in a very brief window in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so now, uh, now that the, that the, the recorded sound can be distributed in all kinds of ways, but also the relationship with, between the artists and fans can happen both in person and remotely through the web. I find that musicians are I hate the word monetizing, but they're monetizing uh, the work that they're doing in all different kinds of ways. Some musicians are amazing live performers and they can make make their money on the scarcity of their time in person uh, by selling tickets or or, or, you know, selling other kinds of unique experiences and uh, goods Uh, in person at shows and the music becomes the recorded music becomes marketing as um, sort of conventional wisdom is saying people don't pay for music anymore, quote unquote, meaning that recordings are just things that have to be given away as marketing. But then with all these new ways of distributing things and, you know, more interesting kinds of software interfaces to recorded music, I think that there are still ways, many ways to innovate on how people pay for recorded music or if people pay for recorded music. Uh, and, and, and every musician can play to their own strengths as far as which of these things is the one they make scarce and valuable. And that, that means that the one thing all musicians have in common is that they need the attention of people who love music. And so the idea behind the model that I'm going to experiment with is that it gets people to listen and from there it's the artists you – know, it's up to the artist as to how they make the most of those listeners.
0: That's that's great because it's – right. It's the, the – the model used to be or the discussion was you can't make any money selling music as a musician because the labels control that. And mm-hmm. so you get make it from – you make sure you get a cut of merch like T-shirts and things and you, uh, and you tour and that's the only way you make money. And that's not true anymore. I mean I, I talked to um, Jack – Conti, who spoke at XOXO, he's on a podcast a few episodes ago, and um, he said he and Natalie and Pamplemousse—they don't—they did—they've done tours, their live stuff—they make almost nothing. I mean, like literally almost nothing because they can't fill. Super giant spaces. They can definitely fill reasonable size spaces, but they have many, many millions of people who know their work and they were doing very well in online sales. But live doesn't work for them and they don't exactly have merchandise. Like you're not buying – I don't know that they've done anything like that, but but Pomplamoose T-shirts, they're not selling a million of those and that's mm-hmm. how they're funding it. They only make money really from selling their music, which was one reason that Jack – Uh, Founded Patreon to provide yet another model on top of, say, you know, the traditional crowdfunding. His is subscription-based crowdfunding. There's direct music sales. Where else do people find ways to monetize? Is it? But it's you know, people are willingly give their money. So a way to make their let their audience support them. Let's say
1: the the I have a lot more experience in person with indie musicians that are my age Mm. that are figuring this out uh, in the Bay Area, and a lot of them still have day jobs, but the The model is different for all of them, and that's the thing that i that i really like there's the one of the problems with this indie world that we 're in is that you need to have a, like every skill <laughs> in order in order in order to be successful yeah. uh, and and so these people don't have every single skill they don't necessarily have marketing skills or web development skills, but they Uh, a lot of them are capitalizing on more than one skill. That's what I'm trying to do too. I mean, I have some understanding of what, of how, you know, web communication and relationships work and that's a huge asset. I I wish more musicians had those skills because they could sort of fake it till they make it with the rest of them. If they can just maintain good relationships with people online, I honestly believe that. But a lot of my friends who are musicians are making money selling, you know, paintings or like, and actually there's, there's one, uh, there's something that I keep seeing at shows and parties here where there are live painters, the 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 acts will hire. People, or I don't know who hires them actually. It may probably varies in different cases. But there will be people there painting next to the stage, and then you know they'll they'll sell these things that are that are made in during the show. They're they're unique and they're they're uh, memories of uh, of the actual show that people were present at. So of course they'll pay for that because that won't exist anywhere else. They'll all be different. I've seen similar things with posters. People will have custom posters. That they'll sell, and if they're a good enough live experience, people will want to keep that as a memory. And people, there, there's people selling. act I think there are services actually that, um, like companies, that will do this for you. That will record your show or or stream oh, your yeah. show, um so that you can get an instantaneous. I've actually seen this at, with big acts too. I've I, the first act I think I saw do this was the Almond Brothers, where you, where they're they're gonna run off like 500 CDs of the soundboard recording within an hour of the show ending, and you can get it as you walk out the door uh, and that's, you know, new music that doesn't require any extra effort on the part of the artist. And there are just all kinds of other ways. And, and I think really the, this, these are the kind of lessons that apply across different media, that there are all little pieces that are the valuable parts of your experience. And they, they can all add up to something. The The folly is just in the idea that, you know, getting a million people to buy your, 11 songs at the same price is the only way to make a living
0: it's also that um not everyone's going to make a living as a musician i mean we should acknowledge that and we know i mean we know that's true now and you're not proposing a wonderful utopia in which all artists can be fully supported by their work but but that people can make a bigger part of their living or have more choice about what they do i mean I i know some musicians who they have uh sometimes if they're they've worked it out well. They have flexible jobs they can take off, you know, part of the summer when it's slow at work and their boss doesn't necessarily want to pay them either. And they tour during the summer. They have mm-hmm. a beat up truck and their, their van. They go around, they do it then. And the idea that you you know, it's not that you're I guess that's the thing we keep coming back to. I want to make sure in this podcast that I'm not convincing everyone to quit their jobs and do something <laughs> new because that's not going to work for everybody. But there is the potential of of having it be part of your living or even something you do from love for love that pays for itself that you it 's not a net drain on you in addition to me having a full time job or, or whatever you have to do in life and so, some of what you 're talking about these are all pieces that when you stick all these different pieces together might add up to enough that someone then doesn't have to work a full-time job or they can work a barista job 20 hours a week and the music makes up the rest. It's not a 40-hour-a-week job and they're trying to do their music on top of it.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's – as a musician myself, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. If, if my, right, right now, tech blogging is still paying for my music habits. Uh, if, if, uh, if I can get this music to pay for itself before you know that little nest egg runs out, that would be fantastic. <laughs> Uh, but, but the
0: blogging is a fad, son. It's going to be all gone <laughs> in a few now, Yeah.
1: Gone. Well, no, I, I, that's, I mean, I've, I've talked like that <laughs> in recent months. And so, you know, I, that's, I, I, sort of got out while the getting was good and, and have been investing in my own experiments since then, but I've been hedging a lot. I've been trying a lot of different things. And one of them fortunately is a consulting business that's making a little money. So I'm able to subsidize all these creative projects until one of them sticks and the podcast is is going to be my big run at making the music business something that I can do with a lot of my time but even still i i'm i'm building that with the with you know the knowledge that my own music is is not going to be something that can sustain me uh, at least in the short term if ever uh, so it's still being involved in music on a day-to-day basis is something that I would love, but it's definitely a strategy of trying to find a way to work my own creative impulses into the larger thing that I'm doing that provides value for other people. And one of the things I love about this idea is that it provides value for other musicians, and I'm hoping that there are going to be services there that, you know, that, that artists find invaluable.
0: Uh, let's talk about the podcast more specifically too since we've been talking kind of around it and what it leads up to and what you're doing with it. It's the portal, theportal.in, mm-hmm. one word, and I'll put a link in the show notes. And um, you've got co-hosts on this, Kurt Bentonen, mm-hmm. Rebecca Marcies, Marcies, mm-hmm. and yep, Marcies. yourself, Marcies. And uh, I, got, I want to sidebar for a second. I grew up in Fremont, California. I lived there When I was a small child. And uh, Oakland used to be um, the scary, dangerous place (laughs) across the bay, or not across the bay north of us, that we never went to because you would die. And uh, over the years, Oakland has uh, maintained a reputation of being a place to go to if you wanted to die. And I realized that reputation is unwarranted. And in fact, I have a friend from there who is only slightly older than you who maintains it is all calumnies and lies now. The city's come through a lot. And, um, and and of course, it's still not the safest place in the world. But I feel like there's a lot happening in Oakland, like it used to happen in, say, Portland, Oregon, which has gotten expensive, or other. You know, there used to be sort of the the cities on the fringe where people could afford to go to, and like in you know, parts of Brooklyn, things like that, you could live there cheaply enough to be an artist, where you couldn't live anywhere else. San Francisco is ridiculous, right? Uh, is Oakland this uh, a new mecca for um, people trying to to uh, create new kinds of art, creativity?
1: Absolutely. And that's exactly what we're doing. And I lived in Portland for a couple of years before I moved oh, here. That's right. I forgot and, that. <laughs> and, and that was, you know, that was definitely the thinking there. Uh, I had to come, I came here for work. I came here to cover Silicon Valley, but, and I took Bart into San Francisco every day. Uh, and that was, you know that, that's how, that's how I made this all work. Um, you know, I, I, I could have afforded to live in San Francisco at the time, I guess, but I couldn't afford to play music all the time. So, cause I had to be, you know, at Facebook news conferences and stuff.
0: San Francisco is the city where you go to become poor working in technology. (laughs) Exactly. Uh,
1: So I took, you know, that opportunity, but I stayed over here and I live, I have two roommates. I'm about to move into a a bigger house with six roommates. Right on. We're we're all collaborators. That's the the best part. Kirk is actually going to be my roommate now. Uh, he's my co-host on the show, and he's the drummer that I've been playing with since I got here. Um, he's more than a drummer too; he plays piano and guitar and writes songs. Uh, and uh, he has Rebecca, a
0: voice as smoky as Tom Waits. Yeah, he
1: sure does. Uh, and Rebecca has, and, and Kirk and I have all been playing together under uh, the guise of a of a larger project by our friend Nat that is now sort of diffusing into a, a super group where we're all working on our <laughs> own things in various combinations. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And and we share a lot of resources. We share a rehearsal room. We, we, there's an amazing. So you asked about Oakland, and there's this the the thing. Something I've always dreamed existed actually exists here. It's called Oakland Music Complex, and it's a gigantic warehouse that's got hundreds of rooms in it uh, that are you know, locked, and there's magnetic locks on the outside and on the you know on each floor of the building, and it's twenty four seven music practice space, and it's full of musicians. And we because of this big project that brought us all together, we split the room a bunch of ways. So it's, you know, pretty expensive on a monthly basis for a single act, but for all of us split, uh, it's totally reasonable. And we just sort of schedule around each other and, you know, spend time in that room in various combinations, share a lot of equipment um, and th- and this is all all making it possible for us to to play as much as we are, and it's a lot. We're playing every day.
0: A makerspace for musicians, mm-hmm, exactly. So, it, you know, there's a book I've mentioned I, probably a year ago now in the podcast uh, by Stuart Brand called "How Buildings Learn," which is uh, it's not mm-hmm. you know like all his books. It's not really exactly about architecture, although that's the focus. But it's this idea that. Uh, There are buildings that are incredibly useful because nobody cares what happens to them. they are low road buildings that seem like kind of crummy. There's a famous building at MIT now torn down that got used – the heck out of because uh, you could drill holes in the floor and take out walls and I talked to the folks at uh, who uh, make the the lumi ink uh, the light uh, sensitive ink down in Los Angeles and they're in a place called the brewery and if they want they can just like drill out the floor and put it in a bathroom which they were <laughs> doing before I got there. Oakland now I don't mean to criticize the entire city it sounds horrible but but Oakland is a place that has been historically so disadvantaged and it was historically uh, I think and still remains. A high concentration of African-Americans, which in California winds up getting fewer resources. It gets put upon. There's incredible racism in California that's often really played under because it's sort of the north, but it's also the west. So Oakland's always gotten trod upon when anything happens. But the upside of that is in a resurgence when everything becomes expensive around it. It seems like Oakland is the place where you can find space, you can find buildings, and people don't have the same – you know, you can't do that because of electromagnetic radiation or whatever. You know, where hmm. San Francisco, every square inch is accounted for and worth a million dollars. And Oakland, it seems like you'd have more flexibility everywhere with what happens and how the city develops now because it's going through a revitalization.
1: Mm-hmm. It's true, and and in the meantime, I mean, the city is is pretty messed up. There there are all kinds of political horror stories on a weekly basis, and there's a you know all the, there's crime, there's violence, there's you know there's been incidents in my neighborhood that have been really upsetting, but the the kind of the chaos I find uh, brings people out to improvise to sort of figure out solutions and you know i found it to be a really warm place there's there's so much so much local activity and so much pride in in the culture that uh, you know, it's it's been. It, it, I think it's it's a really wonderful place to live, even though it has institutional
0: level problems that are really serious. It's so great, though. It's so much better. I mean, that's the thing that's of course hilarious. Is like you know, it's it is so much better than it used to be too. However bad it is now, it was so so much worse at the height of when things were, you know, bad in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, you know, it's actually better now. And it's, and there is a trajectory. I mean, you don't want it to be gentrified. You know, you don't want people to move in and just kick everybody out who lived there. That uh, you know, happens in cities and districts and so forth. But but the flip side is the more people that care about living there, the more likely the city is to come along. I didn't mean to get too sidetracked about Oakland, but I feel like mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a recurring theme in this show, too. I keep talking to people with a connection. To, you know, it's Portland, Oakland, it used to be Brooklyn, and Brooklyn's too expensive now. There's mm-hmm. nowhere, you know, you can't, you can't live there as an artist. The, the podcast, the portal. So you've got two co hosts. You've produced episode zero, your, mm-hmm. your pilot episode. What's going to be the goal week after week or, or on whatever schedule you plan to produce it? Since we talked about that issue of the relentlessness, what's your goal week after week? What do you want to do in each episode?
1: The focus of the show is to talk about love of music. So one thing we wanted to, we you know, the first objective that we set out to to achieve in the programming was to not zero in on an on a musician audience or a super fan audience or uh you know any 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 like niche of music nerd. We want, we want to explore uh you know what it means to love music in the twenty first century and and present artist issues in a way that's interesting to listeners and listener issues in ways that are interesting to artists and music business issues that implicate everyone and so we're gonna have a lot of guests from all around that world and we're gonna talk about the craft of songwriting as much as the you know the art and science of distributing music like we've talked about to you know what we love about certain works uh and and the the main format is going to be conversation but we've we also kirk is a pretty good storyteller and is more (laughs) more into the sort of this American life radio lab style show. And we're so we're going to try to incorporate some of these stories about our love of music into the programming as well. Um, So the format will vary pretty widely on a weekly basis. um, But the subject matter will always be uh, of interest to anyone who loves music, which we feel like is a pretty, pretty uh, big audience. Um, and we're going to have as much music on the show as we can. We we want to have every artist that we talk to play for us or, you know, share a recording or what, or what have you. We, we also, Kirk is the main organizer of a, of an event called live in the living room. Um, that's a sort of variety show mm. uh, that, that, that we, that he holds in the area and I've performed uh, a few different kinds of things there. Um, there's been two of them so far, and we're going to incorporate this live element into the show as well. And ideally, you know, put out some of those shows as live podcasts or parts of those shows or something. And so we've got, we've got an in-person element as well, but we want to share this culture that we're in with uh, as many people who want to participate as we can. And, and while our network is largely comprised of local musicians, we've all lived in various places. We have connections with music uh, elsewhere uh, in analogous scenes, and we're going to have those people on the show as well. So it's you know it's gonna we're hoping it's gonna spread to anywhere where these values uh, and these you know uh, these sounds uh, appeal to people.
0: I love the uh, the live element because we we're talking at the outset of this about that feeling of being in front of people and the buzz you get, and there's this uncomfortable thing about audience. Maybe we could finish talking about that too. Is that there's a little bit of a, a dictatorship. In a relationship with an audience. And and I find that problematic when I don't want to put myself in a position above an audience. I kind of like to be a ringmaster, but I don't think I'm I don't think I'm better than any of you listening to this. What I think that I've been able to do is maybe crystallize some ideas or bring things together. I've put the resources into making something happen that's useful for other people. But I, I think in the independent world you have creators who are often the audience for other people and an audience who are creators in their own right. How do you reconcile that? That position of the spectator who is also an independent creator and any the, tension there.
1: Well, they they can't be as bad as tech blog commenters, so I'm not very I'm not really worried about it. But the the, the that trolls act- are
0: not an audience. Yeah, right. Well,
1: you know the the audience the audience can turn troll on you at any time. <laughs> but but the, the that component of this has been a pretty intentional part of what we're doing. I think live in the living room is a pretty participatory event. Uh, and the and the performers get into that as well. They may not come expecting it, but they definitely find that there's an audience that wants to, you know, sing along or you know, text in uh, lyrics to sing, and which which is an actual thing that happened at the last one. And so we we want to involve those people as much as we can. And I, you know, having you know st- stood uh, up to internet commenters for a long enough time, I'm not hmm. afraid to ask for you know contributions from other people. Uh, and so, you know, what I'm hoping is that, and I, actually, even just from the pilot episode, we've already had uh, one musician email us asking uh, to be a regular contributor in some way. Oh,
0: oh, that's the, And, yeah. and I, I
1: don't know how we're going to work that in, but, you know, I definitely love the idea uh, of having guest correspondents or what have you. Uh, and I, I think that because because this show is not about one band and it's not about one style of music, I I, I think of it as a, Collaborative environment, and while we're the hosts, and you know, surely we're going to talk about our own music and our own musical experiences. It's not a—I'm going to use another word that I don't like. It's not—it's <laughs> not, not another—it's not a brand that represents any particular people's point of view. It's about sharing with each other. Uh, so I—I I really look forward to hearing people from the audience come forward with their own stories about their own music and their own—you know—sharing their own music with us. Uh, and sharing what they think of of our music and our process, because I think that thinking out loud about these things is is a huge part of building that personal relationship uh, with with an audience that means more than just a one way transaction.
0: Perfect. It is as if you were prepared for that question, even though we didn't discuss it ahead of time. <laughs> that was a wonderful answer. Well, so people should find the show notes for this episode at newdisrupt.org dot org and look for the portal dot i n to subscribe to john and his friends podcast you know when i was in college there was a music publication called nadine and its subtitle was the uh, magazine that wishes it were a band and and you've got a you've got a podcast that is a band a, a band that wishes it were a podcast and A band. <laughs> that's right it's a podcast <laughs> inside a podcast inside a band john thanks so much for coming on the show and, and sharing all these ideas about about music and the future thanks for having me glenn it was great to talk about it The New Disruptors has a new home. Find us at newdisrupt.org. You can find our new podcast feed, leave comments on individual podcasts, or send feedback. We release a new episode every Thursday. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G.com for more details. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.